Ladies and gentlemen, February 3rd, 2022, I'm Matt Belinsky. This is The Prevailing Narrative. And before we get into some topics, I want to tee up an interview that I'm having on this episode is with Tobias Heeslip. He is the CEO and founder of Trading TV, a super hot startup that is kind of the love child of CNBC, Twitch, and Robinhood. So it's like live streaming for trading, trading securities, stocks, crypto, what have you. You can conduct the trades on the platform, but also you know for creators, because now we have an entire universe of creators who are talking just about stocks and trading and financial news and that that speaks to the economic environment that we we are in um and you know it's changing very rapidly with uh you know a, a rise in interest rates and a new macroeconomic environment being kind of mandated by the fed and a big dump off in crypto and tech stocks recently so between that and inflation concerns uh, a lot of people's minds are on the market right now and tobias is a guy who has worked at you know he's worked at goldman sachs morgan stanley um uh some of the top boutique investment banks in the world where he has been a trader, particularly focusing on tech and media stocks. And so he's seen every piece of the chessboard. He is he's seen the financial markets from just so many different angles. And he's going to tell us, you know, what his thoughts are on the macroeconomic environment and what we're seeing in the economy. Super interesting. Um, we're going to switch up format a little bit also this week because it's not going to be my only interview. This Friday, I will also be releasing another podcast that is a long form interview on crime in America's big cities, in particular Los Angeles, with Deputy District Attorney John McKinney. He's one of the Deputy District Attorneys here in Los Angeles, has been for 23 years, and has been a vocal critic of Los An- his boss, Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. And he's going to give us just a masterclass in understanding why crime seems to be surging in Los Angeles and America's big cities, and in particular, in direct response to some of these new reformist, decarcerationist District Attorneys like George Gascon, who have been, uh, uh, been elected in L.A., San Francisco, New York, Philadelphia, and some other cities. Um, we'll also be joined by my, my good friend and colleague, Sean Matian, who's been a criminal attorney and public def- uh, and defense attorney here in Los Angeles. So we're going to get the prosecutor's view and the defense attorney's view, and we're just going to do a deep dive on crime and criminal justice in Los Angeles. I'm going to have two pieces of content for you this week. Um, but first off, like I said, today's episode, we'll get to some topics in a minute and then to the interview with Tobias. This is the prevailing narrative, as always, your weekly dose of sanity. And we will need some sanity after these recent NFL playoffs. They were incredible, dramatic endings, game-winning field goals, lots of games went to overtime, just an incredible set of games, uh, including the Los Angeles Rams versus the San Francisco 49ers game, which took place at SoFi Stadium here in Los Angeles this Sunday. Um, Beyond the antics on the field, there were some interesting ones in the stands and in more particularly the luxury boxes. So after the game, LA legend Magic Johnson goes to Instagram, as he often does, uh, to do a photo dump of his his photos from the game. And the caption reads, in the suite at the NFC Championship game with California Governor Gavin Newsom, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, and billionaires Alec Gorris and my partner Mark Walter. Billionaire Alec Gorris. Fascinating. Um, either way, that photo dump is notable because it displays London Breed, Eric Garcetti, and Gavin Newsom not wearing masks. Um, they're supposed to be wearing masks. SoFi Stadium was under a mask regulation, as are all indoor facilities in the state of California by the rules laid down by Gavin Newsom himself. Um, So while it's obviously patently absurd to expect people to wear a mask in an 80 raucous, rowdy, 80,000 person NFL stadium during a playoff game, I mean, they they dispense with any rationality and try, you know, try to make us continue with the charade by issuing this mask rule and then don't even follow it. Uh, Of course, Newsom the next day lied his ass off 
often said that, you know, he only took the mask off one uh, at Magic Johnson's request in order to take a photo and also uh, in order to eat and drink, even though, you know, there's numerous photos of him not wearing a mask at various junctures of the game. Um, But lying is kind of a state of being for this individual. It's not really something unexpected. Um, Garcetti, just to take this guy, he's pretty much abandoned the post of mayor. I mean, the only time he shows up is to go to sporting events. Ask anyone in L.A., including people in the mayor's office. He's abandoned the the job of mayor. Okay, Uh, essentially during covid, he couldn't take the heat anymore. He was expecting to get a high ranking uh, position in the Biden administration. Biden wanted nothing to do with him and shuffled him off so he could be ambassador to India for fuck's sake. And and he's really hasn't done he doesn't show up to work. And I know this because I know a lot of people involved with Garcetti's office and those who raised a lot of money for him because I was one of those people back during his initial mayoral campaign in 2013. Listen, I was young and naive. He had a good stint as a city council person. He was very pro business and pro development. And hey, if you're an up and coming young professional in L.A., it made sense to go raise money for Eric Garcetti, who is likely to become the next mayor as a good, you know, as a for professional advancement and networking. I mean, I got to experience this guy when I was, uh, was fundraising for him, you know, at some of these events. And I mean, he's a total phony. He would just, you know, go put on his sly fake smile and, and talk down to everybody and then turn around to me and then make uh, any number of crass, uh, uh, you know, crass statements about women and God knows what. And just this guy's a total phony. Anyways, back to this game. You have the the political leaders of California and its two biggest cities who are, are telling everybody and requiring all businesses and indoor facilities in their territories to mask up. And once again, they're not doing it at the game. Um, most egregiously, what really lit the fire on social media and, and the, the response to this afterwards is the fact that, you know, Sunday, Eric Garcetti and London Breed and Gavin Newsom don't have to wear a mask at SoFi Stadium with 80,000 people. But Monday morning, one of all the children in their cities in the state of California wake up and go to school. They have to wear a mask all day long. That's on its face, just grotesque. And I, the, the, Friends of mine, the followers of mine who are parents who have to, whose kids have to go through this were absolutely livid and rightfully so. Was there any response acknowledging this from any of these people? No. Of course, Newsom just brushed this off and and suggested that he was wearing the mask the entire time. But beyond that, this is an 80,000 person stadium. Nobody was wearing masks. We all know they weren't. Okay, everyone can see it right in front of their eyes. Yet we're supposed to continue with this charade and with this this meaningless pageantry uh, uh, and businesses have to abide by this despite it continuing to corrode their relationship with their customers. Uh, And while the people making the rules do do not feel compelled to follow it themselves, Um, this can only last for so long. Right. A society can only last with the the elites and those making the the rules essentially saying, hey, screw you, peasants. We don't uh, rules for thee, but not for me for so long. At some point, it bubbles over. Um, And and so I'll get to where where I think that's going in just a second. But, you know, we all know at this point in the vast majority of situations, because as we know, as we've discussed, masks can have a beneficial effect in certain limited circumstances, but are not universally are not universally useful, including duration, right? Over the course of two to three hours sitting in a stadium, the amount of airflow and particles that leave everybody's mouth, regardless of which mask you're wearing, unless everybody's wearing an N95 the entire time, it's not going to stop COVID, okay? If you stick people in the same space for two to three hours, eventually the air is going to escape, okay? You can go look at the CDC's guidance on various masks other than N95, and this is what it's 
says. So we all know it's bullshit, right? We all know these masks are hollow symbols and all they're meant to do really is to signal if I'm wearing a mask or I'm instructing or suggesting that you wear a mask, this is my, me giving a, sim, uh, a symbolic gesture and an indication that I am a thoughtful, educated, sophisticated person who believes in science and cares about others. And this this is the symbol of that. Even though it, we know that the health, actual health impact at this point is next to meaningless. Um, and, and so we're, once that that is another one of these factors that funnels into the grotesque hypocrisy of the political class defying their own rules because they, they know that they're making everyone observe these rules just based on that symbolism. Okay, they have the data, they have the understanding, they know that these things given the circumstances in nine out of 10 situations do not have any discernible health impact whatsoever. But, you know, hey, once again, they're telling us, let them eat cake. And they're telling us that that we have to abide by the rules, in particular, a bunch of children while they do not. Um, and so what does this pretend for the states that, you know, a state like California, that's a blue state, um, heavily democratic. I and mean, is this something that is sustainable? And I think that a lot of people get lost in the false dichotomy between liberal and conservative, red state versus blue state, and they don't understand that there are cleavages within these communities, right? California, yeah, very blue, but not everyone's on board with this bullshit, okay? I know because I see my direct messages, and it's a lot of people from the state of California and from Los Angeles, including the vast majority Democrats, who aren't on board, right? And I have a bit of a social media following. It's nothing, you know, it's nothing outrageous. I have about 36,000 followers on Instagram. That's gone up by about 31,000 since the beginning of the pandemic. And so that's a lot of people that are very engaged on news about COVID, right? They, they, they're always interested in, you know, in the facts and the data and the relevant issues to this topic. So I get a ton of direct messages of people giving their honest thoughts and feelings about masks, vaccines, about COVID, about risk, about what's being done to their children. And the amount of messages I get that are caveated with, I'm, I don't feel comfortable saying this publicly, or I'd never say this publicly. It's unbelievable. If you had any idea, the pure volume of messages I get of people saying completely rational and in, in fact, probably more accurate things, but who don't feel comfortable saying it publicly, certainly in California amongst the, the, uh, uh, the class and the cohort of parents. I mean, this is because the the handful of Karenish parents who want to who just lambast anyone who who doesn't want to abide by a restriction or who might suggest that certain restrictions don't have a rational basis. I and mean, they're the ones who control the conversation. But in response to this episode with Newsom, Breed, and Garcetti, um, this has really empowered a lot of people who didn't feel comfortable speaking out to now speak out. Essentially, a lot of people going to their their uh, parent groups, their children's schools, the administration, or even youth sports, much of which require that kids mask outdoors during athletic activities, which is just insane, saying, hey, oh, wait. The, the people making the, these rules don't feel the need to abide by them. Why are you forcing my kid, my six-year-old, to play a soccer game with a mask, uh, wearing a mask, when the politicians who are making the rules don't even feel the need to do so? And I think that this was a bit of a turning point in that regard. Whether or not Newsom finally caves and accepts that th this is all bullshit, I mean, the 
the the momentum and the Overton window of what people feel comfortable saying uh, around the mass conversation, particularly in regards to children, I think has changed in response to this event. Um, and this this actually followed an interesting piece that kind of discusses the split or this. Let's, let's call it this cleavage in blue state society about the mask issue by Ross Douthat, who's one of my favorite columnists. Um, he, he very much harps on a theme of American decadence that we've become kind of a, um, you know, a stale and bland society that's no longer dynamic, that even at some other times when things might have been more volatile, we were a more dynamic society. And we've kind of just kind of sunken into this ennui and we no longer have true spirit. So his piece was called, uh, Will a Mask Debate Split Blue? states and he mentions how even within blue states you can literally travel neighbor to neighborhood to neighborhood and experience different realities uh, as he says if you're a new york city resident you can experience two completely different realities just by traveling the short distance from the posher parts of brooklyn to to queens if you pass you pretty, pretty much in going from brooklyn to queens you go from a world of ubiquitous n95s and careful checking of vaccine cards to a world where masking is maybe 50 uh, 50% proposition and outside of hipster establishments the vaccine pass rules are almost totally unenforced. You also see that in Los Angeles. I'd say at most 25% of businesses here are checking vaccine cards. We have what's supposedly supposed to be a universal vaccine mandate for indoor businesses. Nobody's enforcing it, right? And once again, we're supposed to continue with this charade and pretend pretend that these are sensible rules that people are following. And that's just not the case. But the point of Douthat's piece is that Things are starting to get hot under the collar within blue states. You kind of saw it with Virginia, with Virginia flipping back to a Republican governor. And if you poll everyone, I mean, essentially the the cohort that switched, that flipped flipped Virginia from voting for Joe Biden by 10 points over Donald Trump to electing a Republican governor literally less than, you know, well, actually literally a year later, is the handling of uh, of COVID restrictions amongst children. Is closing schools, require, you know, trying to force uh, vaccine mandates and mask mandates on, on the youth. And as we all know, the youth are at incredibly low risk from COVID. And this is one of the strangest phenomenon that it seems like the, the power structure in liberal cities and liberal states is trying to exert its power over the most one most powerless and two least at risk cohort, right? As Douthat goes on and kind of explaining these two different universes that are, that are essentially right next to each other. And to pass back and forth between these two worlds, just a subway ride or short highway drive away from each other is to appreciate not the ever expanding influence of Fauci and technocracy, but now at least the palpable limits of its power. Where do we find the limits of power to enforce COVID restrictions, right? At what point do they become too much that people start disobeying? And then he goes on. With one crucial acceptance, of course, public school systems where statewide school mask mandates in states like New York and Connecticut have kept kids masked in communities where otherwise the public health regime has little purchase, right? So all these cafes and restaurants in LA are flaunting the vaccine mandates. They're not checking the fucking cards, okay? They're just not. Then you go to schools. You can't hide in schools. They're checking vaccine cards uh, amongst the youth. They're enforcing the mask mandates amongst the youth, which is the strangest because as Douthat mentions, Kids are one of the lowest risk populations, and that means that this extension of power only heightens the peculiarity of the entire dynamic. It's like the 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 restrictions are being more most forcefully applied um, against the most powerless and the most at risk 
cohort of the population, which is just incredibly strange. So where does this all end, right? I mean, our, our parents, and because once, uh, once again, as I mentioned, all these people that follow me and our young parents have kids that are DMing me about, you know, their, their frustration and aggravation with COVID restrictions for their kids. Sorry to break it to you. These are not Trump voters. These are not Republicans. A ton of these people are Democrats. And at some point this breaks, right? You know, the at some point there will be a straw that breaks the camel's back and these politicians are not going to be able to, can, you know, or forget the politicians. The other citizens that try to enforce this stuff are not going to be able to enforce that kind of biomedical security state uh, uh, to the same degree that they think they can right now. Like, for instance, California is still under uh, a state of emergency. In two weeks, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people coming to L.A. and 100,000 people in that stadium for a Super Bowl. How, like, the utter absurdity of all of America watching the Super Bowl going on in Los Angeles and Los Angeles still technically being under a state of emergency. I mean, th- this is going to get nasty, as it deservedly so should get nasty. I mean, what the political fallout will be for people like Newsom and, well, Garcetti's already done. I mean, he knows his political career for all intents and purposes is pretty much over. That's why he's been hiding in a cave for pretty, essentially for the last year, only to come out to go to sporting events. Um, so, you know, Another place where we need to kind of look past the red versus blue divide and understand there's starting to become some breakages within these cohorts. And uh, uh, I, you can you can believe me or not believe me. You can deny that this is what my DMs look like. That it's a lot of Democrats who are really no longer on board with these COVID restrictions. But that's just the truth, and you're going to start seeing that materialize one way or the other. All right, let's stay on the topic of football here for a second and also on the topic of enemies. People like Eric Garcetti and Gavin Newsom, they are, of course, are my enemies. I'm making no bones about that. But there's another enemy of mine who I actually learned quite a bit from and and reached a a healthy level of respect for, and that is Tom Brady. Tom Brady announced his retirement this week. I was looking up some quotes about, you know, respecting an opponent or a worthy opponent. Warriors want a worthy opponent. There is no redress in fighting the pathetic. Maybe that's what pisses me off so much about guys like the Newsoms of the world and these other just ridiculously incompetent politicians. I mean, these are these are pathetic enemies. But a one who is not was Tom Brady, very much a worthwhile and an admirable, an admirable competitor. Uh, man, I used to despise this guy, right? And first off, as an Angelino, everything about Boston sports and uh, as a New England Patriot, he represented Boston sports. I just despised. We have a natural rivalry. It started between the Lakers and the Celtics decades ago. Really heated up when I was a kid in the '80s between the Lakers and the Celtics, and it's just there. It, such a con- such contrasting cultures between Los Angeles and Boston, and these Boston sports fans were just these really kind of lowbrow, bottom drawer, aggressive, wannabe tough guy, obnoxious people. It was like go go freaking find something else to do you know, to value in your life other than Boston sports and having a crappy accent. And then Tom Brady comes along and is the vessel for their success. And it just he seemed like the most cliched mindless dude who just was his favorite movies were every cliched sports is oh my god uh america varsity blues in the program are the greatest movies of all time like tom this guy this guy is so annoying and then you go to his is the beginnings of his success in his career when he led uh the patriots to their first super bowl with the tuck rule beating the raiders we all know the tuck rule was bullshit and everything about tom brady i just despised and i rooted tooth and nail against him for years um could not tell you how thrilled i was when new york 
Giants upset his great uh, uh, New England Patriot teams a couple times. But you want to know something? Eventually, I bit the bullet. Eventually, this guy's greatness was just impossible to deny. And it, the guy's, what a track record. I mean, at the top of his game, retiring at 44 after, you know, one of his finest seasons statistically and just showed himself to be a focused competitor who cared nothing, nothing but, you know, his love for the game and and, and the mission at hand for a long time. And uh, um, I want to say thank you to Tom Brady because having to go through that evolution and and accepting the uh, a healthy level of respect for an opponent and someone who I had spent a lot of time uh, hating on, you know, I think that's that's something that's healthy. So as opposed to the unworthy foes and some of these, like I said, just woefully moronic and buffoonish politicians whose clearly interests are clearly at odds against people of goodwill. Let's look for those who are enemies, but who are worthy foes, such as Tom Brady. Tom, enjoy your retirement. Congratulations on an amazing career. And thank you for helping me learn a couple things here and there about the world. Okay, this week in cancel culture, and you know something that's not going to be a segment on this podcast, but let's be honest, if we wanted it to be, it could, and there's just nonstop of these these little pseudo controversies in corporate America or the media, um, and this week's one was particularly just eye-rolling and demeaning um, because it, it it surrounded you know notable intellectual and historian Whoopi Goldberg and the brilliant minds at The View. Uh, and so long story short, um, Whoopi Goldberg born Karen Johnson, but she decided to adopt a Jewish moniker because she thought it would help her in the entertainment industry. Go look it up. Her brother stated, uh, you know, was very open and stated that's why she adopted that name. But, you know, they, as they so obviously, it was super appropriate to get into the topic of race and the Holocaust on The View. And Whoopi Goldberg thought that she was uh, had the baseline knowledge to start commenting on this topic. And she started arguing against the notion that the Holocaust and Hitler's hate for the Jews was, quote unquote, racism, right? I forget what she uh, specifically referred to it, but, you know, because Jews are for the most part white, although uh, uh, Sephardic Jews, I think, you know, it's questionable because they she classifies them all as Caucasian, that there was no racism involved. I mean, the the degree, the levels of ignorance around the Holocaust, World War II and Nazi philosophy that this exhibits are, are hard to overstate um, and just why on the, the view you know stay in your lane you got to know when you're over your skis this is not what you should be discussing but um you know obviously Whoopi mentioned this and it was very you know, there was a big social media pile on and it was very quickly exposed that this was a ridiculous comment and just denied so much underlying um, information about, you know, how do you think Hitler determined who was a Jew? He didn't care if a person who was Jewish was an atheist who never went to synagogue. The Third Reich had policies to determine whether or not a person was Jewish and thus was going to be sent to the concentration camps based on their genetics and their bloodline. Uh, uh, and it was, they were pretty much doing 23 and Me to determine who was going to Auschwitz. So don't sit there and fight can tell me that this had nothing to do with race or at least race as the Nazis conceptualized it. Um, but regardless, you know, what, what was the response here? Uh, Whoopi issues the apology and uh, uh, just kind of goes through this struggle session of how she needs to learn more and yada, 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 yada. Um, and then after that was just inevitable, you know, that th that's how these things go. But then the view goes ahead and still suspends her for two weeks. Did anyone ask them to do this? I mean, I'm Jewish. I, I know a lot of other, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to find a Jew who thinks that 
there's anything to be gained from Whoopi Goldberg being suspended. I mean, in fact, it's kind of embarrassing because it really infantilizes the the entire subject that, ooh, okay, let's, well, we need to teach this 63-year-old or however old Whoopi Goldberg is woman a lesson um, and, and by suspending her. And that's how we're going to make our karma deposit to society. And I mean, it, Jesse Single on Twitter, he I thought he gave voice to this. Um, his response to the Whoopi Goldberg two-week suspension. It's condescending bullshit is what it is. Like, we can't handle one celebrity saying a tone-deaf thing. I hate the safetyism. My ancestors were chased around Europe by bloodthirsty lunatics for generations. Both my grandpas fought in World War II, and here's we where we are now. Like, th- this is just putting a childish sheen on otherwise important issues, right? Like we all know that whatever is said on, on the view about the Holocaust doesn't really freaking matter, but it's now this part of the new social code and particularly in corporate America that you now have to go. It's like putting children on a timeout, right? It's like corporate America is now one big romper room kindergarten. And we have to do these little symbolic showings of, of you know, giving someone detention or demerit or, or uh, you know, the hall monitor coming around and you know telling them to not run in the hallways and that's supposed to pacify whoever the supposedly supposed offended class or the offended group was i don't know how i'm not going to speak for other people who are members of ethnic or religious subgroups um but when someone says something tone a public figure says something tone deaf about them i mean you've got all the chattering heads you know yelling for some sort of punishment or consequence but this all feels very condescending like who cares like oh we're going to pacify the jews by by giving Whoopi Goldberg uh, a two week suspension, like who who are you trying to pacify? Like, is this how adults operate? Is this how an adult society operates? But this is how all of corporate America and definitely corporate media, this is how it operates right now. It's like a freaking kindergarten. Um, so that and, and, and you know, she'll come back in two weeks, and we all know this was completely meaningless and hollow. It's just very patronizing for them to think like, okay, we'll throw you a bone and and suspend Whoopi for two weeks for her wrong wrong think, and you know, this uh, uh, approaching uh, senior, you know, the senior citizen woman will you know really learn some deep lessons by her two-week suspension and then you know uh, all will she'll put up on a holocaust museum next to this view studio this is all ridiculous okay Okay, so there was another one of these incidents this week with Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, um, resigning. That was actually yesterday morning. So Jeff Zucker, um, kind of the the you know the hall of, uh, hall of fame member of failing upwards in uh, the entertainment industry, former head of NBC, um, has been the chieftain of CNN for about nine years now, which I think also speaks a lot as to what I'll get to in a second. But um, he resigned yesterday. Uh, apparently, I mean, you're looking. What's the controversy? Apparently, it was simply having a a consensual relationship with a colleague and not even a younger colleague that he had just hired or something like that. I mean, this is apparently he he kind of fell in love or had a relationship with um, a woman that's been one of his lieutenants for 20 years now. Um, and it's even strange. This is funny. This was revealed as part of the investigation into the Chris Cuomo sexual uh, misconduct allegations, which is just quite poetic, to say the least. Um, yeah. A embattled CNN boss Jeff Zucker walked away from the network on Wednesday after failing to disclose a con- quote unquote consensual relationship with a CNN staffer. He says, I acknowledge the relationship evolved in recent years. I was required to disclose it when it began, but I didn't. I was wrong. As a result, I am resigning today. So that is also now apparently a new rule. Our social code in America, if you have a consensual, two adults have a consensual relationship, and if you are colleagues, 
apparently one person has to resign or apparently, I guess, whoever the boss is has to resign. It's not like he was sleeping with an intern. He's literally sleep. He literally had a consensual romantic relationship with a, a, a pretty high level female executive. I mean, once again, this is this is how a society of children operates. This is like the the, the childish uh, uh, environment that we had. A hundred years ago where, you know, you, you need an, a, an adult chaperone for, you know, two 17 year old kids to go out on a date and you couldn't wear women weren't supposed to wear a, a, a skirt, you know, above their knee. Uh, we didn't believe society could accept people exercising some free will or coloring outside the lines a little bit. And we have to treat people as so fragile with such kid gloves that we're firing anyone who carries on a consensual relationship with a, a colleague. Uh, this is this is a strange way. This is a strange new set of codes. And I mean, it makes me incredibly glad that I do not work in a big corporation in corporate America. And I mean, another I ask this question often, how much longer can this go on? Um, so more than meets the eye, though, on CNN and Zucker, though, and you start to wonder, um, is there more going on here? And CNN is part of Warner Media. Warner Media was recently or is in the process of being purchased by Discovery. Discovery Media CEO David Zaslav, who would uh, uh, was going to be Jeff Zucker's boss. I mean, he made some interesting comments recently because we're thinking of okay. So just to back up, uh, uh, Zucker made his bones uh, as a producer of the Today Show and then did a lot of work in reality TV. So it start makes starts making a lot more sense while CNN became such a clown network and went from a news at uh, news network to an advocacy sens- sensationalist network over over Zucker's tenor because that's that's in his DNA. Zucker was the one behind The Apprentice. A lot of people kind of trace Donald Trump's rise back to Jeff Zucker, which is even more ironic on how Zucker kept his network CNN alive and essentially becoming the Donald, you know, the Donald Trump news network. Um, so uh, CNN drifted more in a reality TV show tabloidish sensationalist direction. Um, but then David Zaslav, you know, Discovery is kind of just the facts. Discovery is a network's content supposed to have a, a little more gravity. And um, a couple months back, Zaslav gave an interview when he mentioned that he wanted to be very hands-on in running uh, uh, the new media company and gave, you know, implied that he wanted to be more hands-on with CNN and even, you know, outright said, I I preferred news back in the day when it was more objective um, and less advocacy and opinion-based. What did he say here? Yeah. In the 1990s, when MSNBC and Fox News launched, Zaslav said the world was in a different place. I think overall, we'd probably be better off if we just had news net, uh, news networks in America. But we don't. Media tends to be a reflection of where the country is. Where the country was when we launched MSNBC was much more fact based and less divided. So, I mean, maybe this is part of it. Maybe Zucker saw the writing on the wall um, that Zaslav was going to come in, probably fire him. Um, just based on on performance alone, because they want to return CNN back to actual news, back to being an objective news network. While well, everyone kind of can acknowledge it's not at this point, not that I uh, know the, the response here is, oh, but what about Fox News? Yeah, I know Fox News is an advocacy network as well. OK, stop with the it, it, just the whataboutism. Um, so this seems to be the new social codes. In corporate America, everybody is treated like a kindergartner. Say one thing out of line. Ooh, we have to go put you on two, put you, put a dunce cap on you and have you go sit in the corner for a couple hours until uh, you, you've paid the piper. Um, Being a, a consensual relationship with a colleague. Oh, that's the, the corporate environment cannot handle that. The people are too fragile. The system is too fragile. The ecosystem. And, you know, we're going to live by the tyranny of the human resources department that we want no controversy whatsoever. And these are the new rules.
So um, I'm predicting that this is going to continue in corporate America. They're not going to take corrective course. And there's just going to be uh, uh, people are just going to just like people have left a lot of big news organizations for Substack. A lot of people are just going to start new companies. Right. Nobody wants to live like this. There's more money involved. These are scaled networks and organizations that pay big bucks. But at some point they start to shed and they start to deteriorate and talent and both executive talent and on camera talent is going to leave and go independent because who the hell wants to live like this? I know I certainly don't, and that's why you get the benefits of hearing it straight, unfiltered, the prevailing narrative. We'll be back in just a moment. Whoopi Goldberg, Jeff Zucker, that's just child's play. Let's get to the main event. Let's get to the main course. Joe Rogan and the attempt to cancel Joe Rogan off Spotify that has arisen and to a certain extent extinguished all within the last week. Joe Rogan has taken a bit of a COVID skeptics approach recently, interviewed a couple individuals who um, have shown some skepticism of the uh, usefulness of the vaccine, blown up some of the other orthodoxies and pieties about the pandemic, and and it's gotten a little controversial. Um, so but the oddest thing is these interviews are all from at least about a month ago, but all of a sudden over the last week... Um, over the hill rock star, former rock star Neil Young decides uh, I'm going to take it upon myself to launch a crusade against Joe Rogan on Spotify, and that he's uh, he is is amplifying dangerous misinformation about the vaccine, and I'm going to it's either me or Joe Rogan, and I want my music off Spotify if they won't take down Joe Rogan. Um, that wasn't a tough decision for Spotify. Neil was gone within a few days, so he tried to kind of stoke the flame here and and create a bit of a groundswell to cancel Rogan. Um, he. Was was joined by uh, a guy who drummed, plays guitar for Springsteen, Joni Mitchell, a lovely woman, I'm sure, did some great music back in the 60s and 70s. But, I mean, she's also a boomer who's over the hill. Um, there was a, a, a hashtag campaign, uh, you know, cancel Spotify. There were a lot of people with blue check marks on Twitter and social media talking about this and and obviously warning about the grave danger of Joe Rogan and his messaging. Um, but Joe gave, you know, what I would say is a, not really an apology, but a message just kind of stating his perspective on it all. And I, I don't, it doesn't seem like Spotify is going to take any action other than some completely symbolic and hollow, you know, label about misinformation that may be applied to some of his podcasts. Not that he is misinformation, but that people should be aware of misinformation. I mean, it's nothing. Um, so this is another cancellation attempt that failed, but obviously is very telling about our environment. Um, you listen to me enough, you know, I think this is complete bullshit. I think the term misinformation is uh, a pretty meaningless term. Uh, for some reason, inaccuracy, lie or falsehood is no longer okay. We have to term, uh, term something that we disagree with or that we think is wrong as misinformation. But let's look at what really what Rogan is doing, what the response was to him. And and whether or not which which one was valid and what it, what it tells us about you know the media environment these days. So the thing that gets lost in claiming that Joe Rogan's spreading misinformation is that he, he's an interviewer. He's conducting interviews. You cannot impute the views or what's being said by the interviewee to the interviewer. It's not Joe Rogan even necessarily making these statements, right? Throughout history, we can go and look at journalists and people who conduct interviews inter interviewing all sorts of terrible people. Journalists gave Osama bin Laden interviews, okay? Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes 
interviewed the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And, you know, does that mean Mike Wallace was spreading the message of uh, death to America? Not necessarily. That's not how it works. It's the interviewer's job to ask questions, probe, search for information and kind of play off whatever the interviewee says. And that's what Rogan did. Here's an even odder piece of why uh, uh, why it's so odd that this the controversy around Rogan sprang up this last week. It sprang up in regards to two gentlemen, Peter McCullough, who I had a conversation with, and Dr. Robert Malone, who aren't even necessarily super anti-vax, right? They seem to be vaccine skeptics to a certain extent, and I'll get a little more into the details in a second. But Rogan did uh, uh, interview a gentleman who I think does qualify as anti-vax named Alex Berenson um, about two months ago. No one seemed to get their panties in a bunch about that. For some reason, I think it's because so many people have already written off Berenson that they assume people didn't find those that conversation a threat. But Dr. Peter McCullough, very well-credentialed individual, Dr. Robert Malone, I mean, partially responsible for the creation of mRNA vaccine, vaccine technology, these are super credible individuals. And while, as I've discussed before on this podcast, and I think McCullough in his Rogan interview may have veered off in a couple unfortunate directions, I interviewed him, you know, for the most he did kind of correct or walk back a couple things he said on Rogan. And there are a few others that I'm still skeptical of, particularly in terms of VAERS data. Um, but, you know, McCullough's been been cited and published more than pretty much any cardiologist, living cardiologist in America. I mean, he's got some pretty significant credentials and his thoughts and his views need to be considered, just like Dr. Robert Malone. So in his uh, his explanation, you know, he. Rogan said, listen, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. There was reason for skepticism. I was I, I saw a lot of things around COVID, around the pandemic, around the vaccine that weren't adding up. And these were two guys who were both highly credentialed. And they are. There's just undeniable that they're highly credentialed. So I want they seem to be very skeptical. So I wanted to hear what they had to say. I'm sorry, but that's OK. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to interview people and hear what they have to say and hear their arguments. And you could make the case that Rogan should have pushed back on some stuff a little bit more aggressively, but that's not ubiquitously his responsibility, right? I mean, people have their own responsibility to go ahead and, and check out views, to consider and also to see that Rogan didn't agree with everything with them on everything. He probed them. He questioned them. That's how discourse works. That's how an interview works. Um, and be, beyond that, just the the absolute nerve and chutzpah of so many of these journalists and public health officials after the amount of times they've been wrong about stuff to still just be so mind blown that anyone's questioning their credibility. I mean, the couple people had some interesting ways of framing this on Twitter. Um, uh, for instance, my you know uh, a friend of mine, Bridget Fetisi, uh, her tweet, the fiery but mostly peaceful protest people are big mad. No one trusts them anymore. It's like, yeah, after you tried to shovel us mostly peaceful protests, after public health officials, after telling us that we needed to be locked up in our house for three months, all of a sudden we're justifying 10,000 person protests uh, and pseudo riots based off public health concerns and saying that this was not a threat to viral spread. I mean, how are you supposed to how, how are these people still claiming credibility and how are they? How, how are they vilifying and demonizing people for turning to a person like Joe Rogan, who does seem so inquisitive and curious and very much humble? Go listen to Rogan's interviews. He's a very humble, polite guy. And they're treating him like some flamethrower who's saying things come that, that's just he's he's not doing what they claim he's doing. They're not. It, this is not just a matter of free speech, right? Of, oh, well, Joe Rogan uh, gets to, you know, gets to have a voice, too. It's, no, they're 
they're substantively misrepresenting one what he's saying and two what he's doing he's engaged in a discourse that's part of a process of seeking knowledge right of testing out and given how many orthodoxies or supposed truths turned out not to be true during this entire episode this is a valuable exercise i mean let's tally them up first off the attempt to to stifle any investigation into the origination of uh, of the coronavirus and the lab leak and uh, all the claims that the lab leak had been debunked, that we had had it confirmed, that this uh, had originated from a, an animal at the wet market, that turned out all not to be true, right? We don't we don't have proof that it originated from the lab, but we know that the claims that 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 had been debunked were false, right? Um, making people wear a mask walking through the entrance of a restaurant then taking it off when they go sit down to eat when you make people do patently absurd things like that you you harm the credibility of the establishment right you're the people are looking at these absurdities and wondering wait something doesn't add up here it doesn't make sense as time went on and we started to see that jesus christ the the harm from COVID and severe outcomes are so heavily concentrated amongst people you know 50 50 55 or above, but public health officials and and authority figures didn't want to acknowledge that, right? So these types of things create confusion for people. They harm credibility. When we were looking at different states, um, and this was my experience, when you were looking at certain states saying, we have to take these COVID restrictions or there's going to be death and carnage everywhere. But then other states were not taking those same restrictions and having generally the same results, right? And nobody wanted to account for that. Nobody wanted to account for, wait a second, this this may be why we're trying to be a little more cautious, but we understand. No, instead, it was complete scare tactics that, hey, if we release these restrictions, the hospitals are going to be overflowing. Nobody's going to be able to get their appendix out. And it's going to be uh, uh, something that you see out of movies. So once again, people look at this stuff and it doesn't add up. Then they told everyone if Fauci, Joe Biden, Rachel Maddow, all these other people from the liberal media uh, uh, apparatus said, if you get the vaccine, you can't get COVID. They called it said you will be a dead end for the virus. That turned out not to be true. Right. When you keep on making these pronouncements, these dire pronouncements or these conclusions, and they keep on turning out not to be true, people are going to start trying to find an explanation. They're going to start poking around. And that's what Rogan, just as a guy, just as an individual, was curious and wanted to see if he could find a deeper understanding of these issues because the, estab the, the establishment narrative that he was being told was not true. He kept on finding things that were false, and he was totally justified in doing so. So what, what place does Joe Rogan occupy here? Because as... Critics, his critics at this point want to want to paint him as Alex Jones, as some performance artist, flamethrower, conspiracy theorist who's trying to just find the most unorthodox, phony, sensationalist headlines and claims and conversations just to throw red meat to his audience. And that's simply not true. That's not who he is or what he does. So a couple people who are commenting on this topic. Zaid Jelani, who I mention a lot, uh, Joe Rogan's appeal isn't that he's a truth teller or a subject matter expert. He doesn't claim to be a journalist or operating a professional news show. His audience of millions just appreciates someone who approaches the world with curiosity and humility. That's okay. Joe Rogan can be a normal guy who likes to have conversations, who like who can explore topics and test out information and points of view to see whether or not they are accurate or not. OK, and that's exactly what he's been doing with some of these covid contrarians. And here's the thing. I hate to break it to you guys. A lot of what these guys say is true. OK, how about natural immunity? Go go look at the comments. Go look at the literature in terms of what Robert Malone says, what Peter McCullough says about 
uh, uh, the power about the effect of get, getting COVID and having a, an immune response and immune protection from being infected and recovering. Go go look at the studies, okay, and see if they're more supportive of McCullough and Malone's points of view on natural immunity from prior infection or that of Fauci and the healthcare establishment. I'm sorry, the totality of the evidence and the fact uh, the facts are on the side of the contrarians. There's some other stuff in terms of the vaccine that I'm you know still seems to be a little hazy in terms and it seems that McCullough and Malone might be off kilter. But that just means that you're just tallying up the scorecard here, okay? This is not that one side has the monopoly on misinformation and, and the, the other side has the monopoly on truth. That is simply not what we're doing. Doing here, um, another what I thought was very uh, insightful uh, perspective on this on Twitter. It's an anonymous account, but it mentions the magnitude of Rogan's presence in COVID discourse is a direct function of failure in official institution institutional sanction sense making. Censurious midwits are the cause of, not the solution to Rogan's influence. Joe Rogan, just a normal, inquisitive, curious guy, has more influence, and more people are looking to him and his show for truth and understanding on COVID because so much of what they've been told by the establishment turned out to be bullshit. And it would be nice for the establishment to finally own up to that, but it, it seems like that's beyond them. Instead, they're going to go and try to silence the, the voices that are calling them out, that are exposing them for being wrong on stuff. Joe Rogan's not saying, I know everything about the pandemic. What he's saying is, what I'm being told and what we're being told by the establishment doesn't add up, so I'm going to go on an exploration. I'm going to go on a truth-seeking mission to see if we can figure out, if we can gather a better understanding of all of this. And that's what he's doing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And to the extent that that does have grander implications for quote-unquote free speech, I mean, yeah, people should stick by these principles. And people always love to hide behind. It's it's such a cop-out of, oh, these are private companies. They can, they don't have, uh, they're not obligated to give voice to everybody. The First Amendment only protects you from government censorship, not from private company censorship. Mike Solana had uh, a good retort to this. The pro-censorship squad loves to fall back on this monopoly speech company is a private business, so the First Amendment doesn't matter, which is technically true, but runs from the point. Do you believe in the value or not? If not, why support the First Amendment at all? Do you believe in free speech? Do you believe that this is a positive force, right? If you do, you should try to honor that principle, even if you're not legally required to do so. And you should advocate that companies and third-party actors also honor the spirit of that. We should want private companies to honor the First Amendment, even if they don't have a legal obligation to do so, right? And these social media companies, they kind of, it's another conversation of whether or not they resemble utilities or common carriers, but they have a lot of characteristics of companies that could be regulated and thus for, forced to adhere to the First Amendment. So either, you know, either advocators support the principle or don't. You don't get to just hide behind the First Amendment when, when you feel, uh, or use the First Amendment when you feel like it's convenient or non-threatening and say, oh, well, as long as the government's not shutting any, uh, uh, shutting off anyone's speech, it's okay. No. Either you think either you think free speech and free expression is a positive force or a negative force. So if you think it's a negative force, at least own up to it. And then beyond that, I mean, these the cancellation attempts just completely failed. It was a pitiful failure. Like literally Neil Young and like three other 80 year old people were the only ones who took their music off Spotify. They didn't do a goddamn thing to it. Spotify knows Rogan's the most po most popular, uh, uh, you know, person in audio and in podcasting by a country mile okay if they took rogan off spotify you know what's going to happen he just takes his content back to all the other platforms and he has a bigger audience than ever i mean the it, aren't these people the pro censorship crowd aren't you tired of failing aren't you tired of looking stupid 
right? In the name of shutting down speech that which sometimes if you're if we are putting together the scorecard of how his level of accuracy versus the level of accuracy of the establishment that's trying to shut him down and his scorecard, his score is looking pretty good, right? It's just unfortunate that so many people in positions of authority who have a voice have felt have gotten comfortable advocating for censorship, even though it usually doesn't work, particularly when you're trying to take on as big a fish as Joe Rogan. It's just a very bad sign for our social fabric and for where we're at that everyone thinks this is a good thing that ooh I'm going to I'm going to exercise my heck my uh heckler's veto by trying to uh, financially harm Spotify that I think I'm doing something super noble and admirable by threatening to take my music off Spotify so they'll stop so they'll shut down any conversation that Joe Rogan's trying to have trying to find truth I mean th- this is not noble this is not what good people do um so m- who knows maybe they will continue to take L's here and there um this one yeah this was a complete L I, I mean it's it's been a week if they were waiting for a cascade of big name musicians to take their music off Spotify because of their outrage over Joe Rogan it's not happening Neil Young enjoy oh and that was the mo- one of the most ridiculous parts of this this is all being done in the name of capitalism uh, after leaving Spotify uh, uh, his his big um, rebellious move was to leave Spotify for Apple Music, the biggest company in the entire freaking world. So within two days, at the top of the Apple Music carousel, you see Neil Young's music being promoted. I mean, this is just so ridiculous. It's self-parody of an aging rock star who once was a rebel and now is kind of exercising his supposed rebelliousness by jumping from Spotify to Apple. It's ridiculous. So Joe Rogan continue to represent the curious, humble every man. I look forward to the many conversations he's having. Yeah, I hope he becomes a somewhat more adversarial interviewer um, because I think it, it would it would help his cause and it would lead to more truth if he puts his guest's feet to the fire a little bit more. But his behavior thus far has been perfectly fine and perfectly reasonable. He adds to the conversation and given the state of our public discourse other than him, I we, we should be very glad to have Joe Rogan around. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the prevailing narrative. And you know what's been on everybody's mind recently, the stock market and the economy. You've got the stock market taking a dive, crypto taking a dump, inflation running rampant, the Fed trying to turn off some of the gas from the overheated economy, uh, chaos in the markets. And to help us make sense of it all is Tobias Heaslip. He is the CEO and founder of Trading TV. Tobias, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. For sure. And aside from us being friends and me having a lot of respect for you and what you're building right now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you have seen every you know, you, you've been on every piece of the chessboard in the the financial world. You've worked at major financial institutions. Um, some of the bit you've worked as a, an equity analyst at one of the big banks. You've been a director of trading at a boutique investment bank. You are building a business around retail trading, and now you're a startup founder. So, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, more specifically about your background and kind of how that fills out the entire landscape of the financial markets? Yeah, absolutely. So I spent about 10 years on Wall Street working on both the buy side and sell side of the street. Started my career at Goldman Sachs. I went to Morgan Stanley. It was an unbelievable time to be a part of Morgan Stanley because it was actually the first time that social media was becoming an investable asset class. So it was very just uh, synergistic with me being a millennial and, and using these products that they asked me to cover them from an analyst standpoint, which of course I accepted. At the time, everyone thought that social media was a flash in the pan, right? It's like we had just come off of Friendster, you know, having a massive run up and then 
then dying off MySpace having a massive run up and dying off. So like Facebook comes along and was going public. I think most people expected it to be a six to 12 month trajectory. And then for this to be a non-existent platform, uh, it turned out that social media actually became quite a thing. So uh, that was great for my career. Went from there to a hedge fund called Oxif where I ran trading for a little bit. And then was at a Barclays where I ran trading across all of the TMT. So that's technology, media, and telecom verticals. Um, and then I founded Trading TV last year. So it's been uh, it's been quite a decade, <laughs> uh, mostly a bull market, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much a, a continuous bull market for the last decade. So if we are going to go into a prolonged bear market, I think it would actually be technically my first real one, uh, but I'm ready for it. Yeah, fascinating inflection point for you to be to be building this company at. And to that point, and to frame our discussion coming up in a second about the the macroeconomic environment, um, want you were on a, a podcast with some friends and clients of mine and the group over at Group Chat in October with a bit of a different market and and macro environment. You mentioned a a strategy that you'd come across uh, with an anecdote during your times at the bank called the Up and to the Right strategy. So why don't you tell us about what happened with the Up and to the Right strategy, and that will kind of lead us into to whether or not that strategy is no longer feasible. Yeah. Um, to be clear, I was uh, I was joking. I mean, the, the event did happen, but I was joking about the actual strategy. But in this yeah. market, you know, we we did experience sort of a FOMO culture for a really long period of time. And, you know, we will get we'll dive into what was fueling that. But the idea that, you know, you just had to be invested in whatever asset class, no matter where the price was, was a prevailing narrative that took place, uh, you know, for for at least the last few years. Um, specifically within like crypto, but to a, to a certain extent within equities uh, as well. And yeah, I mean, at some point in time, the music does stop, right? And I think we've been playing this game of hot potato for probably longer than anybody had imagined. I mean, I know a lot of people that are professional investors that focus specifically on short selling, which have been carried out. You know, they've lost their funds over the course of the last two or three years because they'd never seen anything that they felt like was as inflated as the environment and the asset prices, both in the public markets and private markets that we've experienced over the course of the last 24 and 36 months. But And essentially, they said they figured that we, you know, given historical cycles, we were at the end of one. They found that it was a safe uh, a time or uh, uh, um, a shrewd time to be short selling, and the market cycle lasted longer than you know than th- their best estimates had expected. Way longer. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, there's the uh, uh, the quote, you know, the markets uh, can stay irrational for a lot longer than you can stay solvent, and yeah. uh, you know, at some point in time, like the, a lot of the hedge funds had, had pretty much given up on on the short side of things. Um, and, you know, even companies that I feel like were, cons- were widely accepted as great shorts, GameStop, for example, had just totally punished people. I mean, the numbers mm-hmm. uh, for, for Melvin, you know, the fund that was very famously short GameStop uh, during the whole, you know, run up on Robinhood and everything else, they just came out and like, you know, they're still 50, 60% underwater from mm-hmm. what was effectively like a two or three week event, right? Um, so most people just aren't willing to risk their funds on, on short ideas anymore. And so I feel like now is the perfect time for it to actually occur where the markets do go down because mm-hmm. there's very little people, that, there's very few people that are actually profiting from this uh, downturn. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Um, for, God, I need you to, to just explain the anecdote, give the anecdote behind the up and to the right strategy. It's too good. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was at the time I was working at a hedge fund um, and, you know, like you're a new analyst at a hedge fund. So like one of the things that you want to do all the time is you want to pitch ideas. And so, you know, like I had, I had a fairly, uh, fairly technical background, you know, I'm not a certified technical analyst or anything like that, but like I know how to read charts and 
So I was like in the process of conducting technical analysis and just to give people like an understanding of like how it works. And when you work at a hedge fund or you work at an investment bank, there is no privacy. Like you're not in an office where, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a big time like PM or something like that, maybe they give you a private office, but the vast majority of traders and analysts sit on a desk and that desk is like, you know, 10, 15, 20 computers in a row. Everyone's got like two, three, four, six screens or whatever. And generally people just walk by and they can see what you're working on or whatever. So I was doing technical analysis uh, on a, a particular stock. I forget which stock it was. And like one of the the head guys that was at the fund walked by and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, I'm doing technical analysis. I was actually getting ready to pitch this to you in like a little bit. And he's like, it's very simple. If the chart is in the upper right-hand corner, it continues to go towards the upper right-hand corner. <laughs> if the chart is in the bottom right-hand corner, it continues to go to the, the bottom right-hand corner. And I was like... All right. So I guess, you know, I won't pitch this particular idea. Yeah. So uh, the idea of momentum and things that uh, go up, keep on going up and something that if you're steeped in market fundamentals and read the great, let's call it Peter Lynch texts of investing, uh, of you know, from days of old or even uh, some of the the principles of Warren Buffett and and Munger, um, you know, up and to the right doesn't seem so it doesn't really seem feasible. Then along comes uh, the 21st century and the stock, the market environment, other than the quick blip in 2008 to 2010, in particular in 2010s, all of a sudden up and to the right. It doesn't seem like such a bad idea as just a, uh, a kind of universal strategy there. But all of a sudden, uh, to the extent that you could ride that strategy out, um, the the market the last you know four to six weeks suggests otherwise. So why don't we get into a little bit about what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective? Um, something that a lot you know the layperson is very familiar with is just the notion yeah. of short term interest rate hikes. But beyond rate, uh, that's not the only factor and variable going on here. It's also what's you know some people refer to as balance sheet normalization and the concepts of quantitative easing and quantitative tightening um, from the Fed. Um, so maybe if you can, you know, to the, the extent, give us a bit of a primer on that yeah. aspect of it and what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I think at a high level, like, you know, to it can get extremely technical, it can get extremely confusing, but at a high level, what people need to understand is, is the Fed putting liquidity? And when we say liquidity, we just mean, are they putting cash into the system? or are they taking cash out of the system? And so since 2007, 2008, the beginning of the Great Recession, that was a real estate-driven recession, the Fed has been expanding their balance sheet to unprecedented levels. And we've never seen a Fed balance sheet anywhere close to the levels that we've experienced thus far. And so what happens when they're in an expansionary uh, Fed balance sheet environment is all asset classes are going to be inflated because there's just cash in the system. So that that exists for commodities, it exists for real estate, and it certainly exists for equities. Why? Because despite the best efforts to be able to get the little guy the money, at the end of the day, the system just works where even if the little guy gets the money, then it ends up going to the owner of the business. What does the owner of the business end up doing? Well, they're an investor, so they put money into stocks and it kind of continues to inflate those assets. So we've now been, I think, whatever, we're in 2022, so 13, 14 years of an expansionary environment. And really, for the first time uh, during that period of time, we've reached the inflection point where inflation is now at 7%. And the Fed realizes that due to their mandate, um, they have to do they have to take action. Right. So how do they do that? Well, the first thing that they do is they stop purchasing treasuries. So they're actually going to 
physically stop buying uh, bonds. And which- so just real quick, in terms of the Fed, quote unquote, printing money, because that's the yeah. layperson term, the that that is where the money printing comes in because they print the money to buy the treasuries and other yeah. assets, correct? Yeah. Other I debt, mean, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just looking at your personal balance sheet, right? Like if you, if you have an expense, um, you have to pay cash for it. Um, or you can, I guess, like get some form of credit, right? But like at some point in time, if there's something that you can't afford, like you just can't buy it. Well, mm-hmm. that same dynamic doesn't exist for the Federal Reserve because they enjoy the luxury of being able to control the currency and circulation. So if something comes up, like a pandemic, for example, and they think that it's going to take $2 trillion of, of cash injections to be able to support the economy through the pandemic, and they don't have that on balance sheet or they don't have it uh, from tax revenue, they just print it, right? It's like literally right click Excel, enter 2 trillion, enter, and then go forth. And like, you know, that, that problem is now going to be, it has to be solved somehow in terms of the effects of it. Um, so the effects of it were, yes, the economy sustained economic growth throughout the pandemic, um, which a lot of people didn't think that it would be able to, um, but inflation is now the issue. And so when you see a number like 7%, a lot of people are like, yeah, 7% feels, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you start thinking about the things that people actually use and do on a daily basis, groceries, Ubers and Lyfts, you know, food delivery, rent, a lot of that stuff's up way more than 7%. Um, and it's starting to affect people's lives, right? So what the Fed is doing now is they're stopping the purchasing of assets. So they're stop printing and stop buying bonds. And then on the other side of it, they actually move interest rates up. So like right now we're at, I don't know, like zero to 25 or zero to 50 basis points target fed funds. And like the market's now anticipating three rate hikes this year. Um, just to give people some context, right? Like we've been dealing in a basically zero interest rate environment for quite some time in the eighties and nineties, like prime interest rates were in the teens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it is feasible to believe that economic growth could occur in a high rate environment, but because of the whole hard landing uh, anticipation, you know, obviously there's, there's like a little bit of concern and that's the reason why assets are selling off. Mm-hmm. And so I l- love your thoughts on the recent statements from uh, Fed Chief Jerome Powell, but also in terms of what we can anticipate in terms of, of rate hikes, but also uh, that's one and two, what really can be the impact of raising rates from historically low levels to just above historically low levels? Because that's what I'm trying to to make sense of right now. I think a lot of other people's like, okay, we understand that rates uh, at the historically low levels they've been at for so long will lead to a lot of you know of asset uh, appreciation and inflation, um, particularly amongst high growth companies. But okay, so what's going to be the impact of some kind of mild rate increases? Because listen, we're not we're if even under the worst case scenario, we're not going to find ourselves back at six percent interest rates short term, 8% or even you know the double digit in interest rates that we saw in the 70s and 80s and sometimes into the 90s. So what really, you know, what, what, what can the market um, digest or how does it digest, once again, going from historically low to just above historically low? Yeah. So this cycles because of the rate of technology and what that actually, the rate of technological change and how that 
um, accelerates the cyclicality of, of the economy, things tend to move much faster now than they had in the past. So you can make the argument that a lot of the move that we've seen over the course of the last, I don't know, four or five weeks has been pricing a lot of this in. Like if you look at where, you know, futures rates are trading, like they're already building in a three interest rate hike, like Bitcoin's off 50%, right? Like stocks are down between 10, 15, some of them 20, 30, 40%. So these things tend to get priced in. And like the best example of it, was actually in the pandemic, right? Like the world was ending, like literally zombie apocalypse was on the table of, of potential possibilities. Um, and then they hit stocks down, whatever it was, 50, 60% in like a you know short period of time. And then the, then it becomes about, okay, what's the go forward? Because the market is a, is a future looking market. You're not looking in the past. It's the reason why you can't like trade Google searches or whatever, because you're looking at mm -hmm. what's going to occur in the future and then discounting that back. So when you look at the pandemic, it was like, okay, you hit things to what the market perceived to be the worst possible levels. Um, so looking at that now, now, how does that look in terms of the interest rate hikes? I think it's probably a more prolonged, uh, time period. So we need to cool inflation from like 7% down to 2% or thereabouts. Um, how quickly can that happen? It can happen fairly quickly. Um, but that means that there's most likely a recession in there. So defined as like two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Um, so that probably takes somewhere between like six and eight quarters to be able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Understood. Um, and so interest rate hikes are one piece of kind of shifting macroeconomic uh, uh, wins. The other piece is, and this is something I think a lot of people have heard about quantitative easing, easing or understand the concept, but quantitative tightening is one that they don't necessarily understand. And that is also, and some of um, what it is ne the, the concern now, at least from what I've seen amongst some very shrewd market observers, is that six months ago, we were anticipating some interest rate hikes or quantitative tightening, but we weren't anticipating both. And with the inflate, when inflation turned out to be not transitory, but more <laughs> more substantial and you know permanent and, and, and tangible, um, that now with both of those at play, that's what it, it hit the market so hard. So if you could just, uh, uh, explain quantitative tightening more specifically, because I think some people, you know, don't necessarily understand that other than conceptually as the the uh, uh, the evil twin of quantitative easing. Yeah. I mean, the, the easiest way to describe it is that it's harder for people to borrow money and it's more expensive for people to borrow money, right? So like the sourcing mechanism for the banks becomes a more expensive sourcing mechanism. They have to pay more money to borrow money uh, from non-depository, from non-depositing uh, accounts. So then when you go to get a loan, like the bank is gonna say, okay, actually we're not gonna give you this loan right now because it's more expensive for us to get the money. And so if you want the loan, either there's a, a higher hurdle rate that you have to jump over in order to be able to get it. So you have to have a better credit history. Your business might've had to be in existence and showing you know positive growth or cash flows um, or you're not going to be able to get the loan and then if you do get the loan as opposed to paying a very small interest rate which would incentivize everyone to go out and borrow money and then go into the world and spend that money or invest it or whatever um, the interest rates actually going to be be much higher on that um, so the effects of that are valuations start to come down because there's less money in the system that are chasing opportunities um, so you've already started to see that happen in the public markets um, I operate primarily, as a founder in the private markets. And so there's a big conversation right now as to what's going to happen to mm -hmm. startup valuations because, you know, you've seen, it used to be a very big deal to be a unicorn, right? Like uh, yeah. there was there was only 
you know, a handful of companies during the initial wave of startups that became unicorns and like they were celebrated and they, the founders became celebrities and whatever. Right. Yeah. Now I forget what the, the total number is. And this number is like changing daily, but as of like, you know, last year there was like 700 unicorns in the private yeah. markets that had gone, you know what I mean? So like, you're dealing, like now, now you got to be a DECA unicorn. Yeah. Like, now that's it, the thing, yeah. right. Is your company has to be worth $10 billion in order for you to like, you know, uh, achieve like any decacorn status or the accolades mm-hmm. that go along with it. Um, so, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens to startup valuations. My guess is that the same thing that applies to the lay individual in terms of his ability to be able to finance daily activities, get loans, you know, for either purchases or for investment purposes will become more difficult and or more expensive. Um, that probably happens to, to startups as well. Meaning like the VCs that are out in the marketplace that are deploying investor capital are going to be more selective of the companies that they invest in. Um, they're going to push back harder on, on founders like me in terms of the valuations that we're putting mm-hmm. on our businesses. Um, there's going to be a requirement to show, you know, material metric growth, whatever is applicable for your particular industry. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. For sure. And uh, that brings me to a related point about, okay, the monetary base in terms of it staying stable based on the ty- the money that the Fed has injected into the system versus the Fed siphoning money out, right? From what I've gathered around quantitative tightening, there, the, when it, the, the debt that the Fed has been buying is thus transferred, and that's a ca- that that is a cash-based transaction. The Fed is essentially receiving cash in this from certain intermediary financial institutions, and thus taking cash out. Not, not just not, it's not, okay. It's almost like we're not we haven't just stopped printing money. We're now actively taking money out of the of the economy. Is that correct? So the way that it works is the the gold standard on anyone's balance sheet from like a banking perspective is always your treasury assets, right? So like the mm-hmm. like in terms of financing the government, like there's a agreed upon thing and like, you know, people will disagree or whatever, but like the United States will never default on its debt. So that's like a triple A asset. And so when you need to raise capital, like you can sell basically an infinite amount of treasuries to the Fed and the Fed is by mandate the buyer of last resort. So mm-hmm. there's always a market for you to sell those assets. Um, and so when you're selling those assets, the Fed is literally they're trading cash for a piece of paper. And then they're just holding that piece of paper on balance sheet, which then is paid from the government in the form of an interest rate, right? So when these people say they're taking money out of the system, we're not going to a place where like the Fed is selling down its its current holdings, or at least not in like a major, major way, but they're stopping the purchasing of it. So they're probably, I don't, there's, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're buying like billions and billions of dollars of, of these bonds per month that's mm-hmm. no longer going to be uh, occurring. Right. And just yeah. to take it another step further. So as the, the reason why this mechanism exists is also because it's the way that you maintain a, above and beyond the target interest rate, the fed funds rate, there's an inverse relationship between bond prices and, and the actual rate. So if you're buying mm-hmm. them, then you're pushing the price of the bonds up, which then pushes the interest rate down. So if you want to be mm-hmm. operating in a low interest rate environment, then you're continuously purchasing these things for the purpose of driving the price of it up, which then keeps the interest rates down. In the absence of the purchasing, then the selling occurs. So the price of the bond is then going lower. The interest rates then go up. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. So that is the very technical explanation of how, <laughs> how this whole economy thing works. Now let's talk a little bit more about how it tangibly impacts, uh, you know, your investment, pro- people's investments prospectus, or, or a lot of the companies that they, they deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, so uh, high-flying, high-growth tech stocks, right? These are yeah. I, I get a lot of focus uh, because they're the names that a lot of people use on a day-to-day basis, given, you know, the, the the, the size of their user base. And I mean, this is something that I like to, when, when I think people have a slightly distorted perspective over what a bubble quote unquote looks like in 2022, as opposed to what prior bubbles have looked like. Yeah. Um, I think it's very helpful to try to draw some distinctions to what happened in the first com era, right? In that prices went out of control, a lot of speculation and they plummeted. And then it probably think about it just from the, the, uh, in, in the e-com sector, pets.com, a bunch of other the yeah. first handful of companies that decided to put dot com at the end of their name and were selling stuff online got insane valuations 2000 2001 bubble pops you had a, an entire generation of early startup employees that thought that they were about to retire and all of a sudden two months later their stock options were were worth nothing essentially and then you start you know amazon stays the course another generation of e-com companies starts to pop up back in you know it's called the mid 2000s and they start to really start making some waves late you know late to the late aughts and the early 2010s and then all of a sudden by the two th- early 2010s wait it, you have an entire sustainable economy of 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 uh, e-com companies and you have, you know, the, these e-com, uh, these flash sale sites, the Groupons of the world, and these are, you know, legitimate startups, what, whatever you want to may call their some outsized valuations. And then since then, it's it, it, there's no bubble that has popped, okay? All these, these uh, uh, e-com companies that have grown, the, the, it, even with valuations that seem to outstrip their financial fundamentals and revenue, there hasn't been any pop there, right? So it seems like we continually go through this cycle of uh, items that are overhyped it, that based on short uh, are overhyped in the short term, but are actually properly evaluated over the long run. Um, and so, while we may see, as you, you mentioned earlier, with a more connected world, a shorter cycle here, where, whereas from the the early two thousands bubble popping, it took probably eight to ten years for the ecom environment to once again, you know, for those companies to grow into a, a true ecosystem. Pro, it's unlikely that it's going to be that that type of horizon here. No. You're probably going to see some sort of. Some sort of kind of mild correction, or even in the you know a less mature space like crypto. I mean, the cycle of boom bust and rebuild into tang- a tangible ecosystem is probably going to be a lot quicker, I'd imagine. Yeah. So uh, uh, a few things on that. So there's not a lot of parallels that are that can be drawn between the dot com bubble and what we're experiencing now for a few yeah. different reasons. One. The venture capital environment in the early 2000s was basically, I mean, it existed, but it was way, way um, smaller than it is today. So what you had Mm -hmm. is a mechanism of financing is you had a lot of companies who should have been, who today would be VC-backed companies, which were publicly traded at the time Mm -hmm. because that was the only mechanism to be able to raise capital. I think a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, forget that the reason to go public is to to raise capital raise to then money. operate yeah. your business, right? So in the absence of, of capital in the private markets, a lot of these businesses had to go um, public and they went public much earlier than we would see companies go public today. Why? Because companies in the private markets today can go to venture capital firms and they can get funding that way. So what you had is you had a bunch of early stage companies, a lot of them pre-revenues. We would consider them to be, you know, seeds, uh, seed, 
pre-seed series A, maybe some series B companies, which were trading at the exact on a public, on a public exchange, NASDAQ, NYSE, whatever. Um, and, and at the same time, people were projecting out the growth of the internet. And so it was kind mm-hmm. of like, all right, great. Rising tide lifts all ships. Holy shit. You know, there's only a few million people that are on the internet right now, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now that, you know, 3 billion people are going to be internet users. And like you do the math or whatever, and you can get insane valuations. Those, uh, those valuations were then applied to companies that were non-deserving. We're not in that environment today, right? Like the vast majority of companies, which, which hold market caps that are huge on NASDAQ are real businesses. We're talking about Mm -hmm. Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, you know, like these are real companies that are generating tremendous amounts of profits. Um, and like, you know, we can argue about whether they should trade at, you know, $2 trillion in market cap or 1.7 or whatever, but like, it's not going from 2 trillion to zero. Like that's just not going to, not going to occur. So what happens is you get a bunch of these companies that are sort of in the middle that probably have extended valuations. I'm talking about mostly SaaS software businesses, which trade off a price to sales mechanism. Well, I so, think sales, I think Salesforce is an interesting one to look at in that, in that cohort. Yeah. They're, they're, they're still trading at like 130 times earnings. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a period of time where businesses go from a price to sales. Like when you're an analyst, you're looking at things on a revenue basis to begin with. Why? Because like below the line, you can basically financial engineer because you're trying to reinvest money into the business. So you're looking mm-hmm. at top line revenue growth until the business matures. Um, but if you would have pulled like, you know, the Warren Buffett, uh, school of investors or whatever in the sixties and seventies that like, we were no longer going to value companies off price to earnings. You know, mm-hmm. we were going to look at price to sales. They'd be like, that's fucking insane. Yeah. But that's how you look at software businesses because when the, when the revenue is going the right way, you want to be investing every dollar back into the business to grow mm-hmm. top line. You worry about expansion, expansion of margins later and profitability later. Um, so yeah, so like Salesforce is now like a fairly mature company, right? So like, they're going to start to be evaluated more and more off like, what they can do from a profitability standpoint. But those companies, like that's not the Salesforce or whatever is maybe sells off a little bit, but like it's more of the, you know, whatever, like the company that hasn't broken a profit that trades mm-hmm. at 50 times sales, 60 times sales. Those are the ones which will start to get hit really, really aggressively um, because there'll be a question as to whether or not profitability can ever be established, right? Not mm-hmm. as to whether or not they're doing it intentionally, um, yeah. but as yeah. to like whether there's a path forward. So the best example of this that ha- that you know comes up a lot is is like the gig economy stocks like can uber can lyft can grubhub like are these businesses that can make money long term like actually like mm-hmm. physically produce a profit yeah and so your the the outlook cuz we're you've got these companies you've got the blue chips you know the netflix and the, the googles the amazons um and the apples and they've already grown beyond what some people ever believed was but people did not expect to see trillion dollar market cap companies and then they no. came pretty quick and in fact it's even more surprising because they they were companies that hadn't really exi- you know at the beginning of the beginning the turn of the millennium i mean you didn't have any trillion dollar companies and it was a question when you were going to see one but then the fact that it was companies that hadn't even really uh, reached scalability at such time was pretty shocking to people so then you think okay wait these they've got to be hitting a saturation point how much more can they grow but then you see apple continue to purport absolute monster earnings right over and over and over and over again and so there supply chain disruptions by the way 
Like they're, like they're beating revenue. They beat revenue by like $6 billion last quarter. Jesus. Granted the, the estimates were probably slightly lower because everyone expects there to be some sort of impact, but mm-hmm. like they literally have like cargo ships worth of product that can't get delivered to stores, which are materially um, impacting their ability to actually generate revenue because they don't have a phone to sell you or they don't have a Mac to sell you. It's like sitting on a cargo ship in China or in Port of LA or whatever. Um, so like, yeah, you're right. Like these businesses, the and it's not just the core business of what it can do. It's the ancillary businesses that exist that can then add to revenue and profitability as a result of the core business being in place. So like mm-hmm. Amazon's the best example. Like when you tell people, oh, you know, what does Amazon do? They're like, oh, it's an e-commerce player. Yeah, it is. It's also the world's largest cloud computing company or yeah. like one, one of the AWS. top three a- a- Amazon web services. So like me and every other founder, um, like we pay Amazon every month for the right to be hosted on their servers. Right? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, this, if you were to break up Amazon's market cap into tranches, um, you, you know, like Amazon web services would probably be if not a trillion dollar business, like close to a trillion dollar company that spurred from Amazon's e-commerce business. Why? Because there was no one that had enough servers to be able to service the needs of Amazon's explosive growth. So they're like, fuck it, we'll just build Amazon web services. Okay, Mm -hmm. now we have extra capacity. So like, you know, startups want to tack on to our cloud computing. Great, right? That same thing exists. Like Apple didn't start as a phone company and started as a, as a computer company, right? Yeah. Like they sold, they sold desktop computers, probably mm-hmm. one of the least sexy businesses that Apple is in today. Most people think of Apple as a hardware company. No, Apple's a software company. Like if you are on the, if you're on the app store, uh, if you want the privilege of being on the app store, 30%, I think they just lowered it to 20, but whatever, between 20 and 30% of all in-app purchases go to Apple. Mm-hmm. So like you could literally run the Gillette razor, the Gillette model for razors, where they could be like, here's, you know, here's the phone, just take it. Right. And like, it's still a profitable business because people are going to spend money on the phone and they're going to generate, they're going to generate revenue. Like no one conceptually understood what an app, what the possibility of like an app store would be. And now it's a duopoly, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're either on Android and Google or you're on iOS and Apple, both of them coincidentally have the exact same pricing metric. So like, you can't go, <laughs> you can't go to one and say, Oh, you know, fuck it. Like we're going to be, we're going to save some money and go over to Google. It's like, no, no, it's the same price. And so yeah. like, what is that worth? I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously worth trillions of dollars. And, and also, cause I want to, you know, as, as this leads into your thesis for starting trading TV, which we want to get to in a moment, there's, there's certain, um, certain kind of, let's call it infrastructure. Uh, uh, the, 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 characteristics of infrastructure in the digital age and the globalized age, right? When you're dealing with entirely global markets and in, to- in a generally connected society, that the the potential addressable market for an Amazon, Google, Apple is just beyond what anyone had ever contemplated before. And then, you know, an analyst I read a little while back when thinking about what Apple could grow into being. So think about how much of the world still hasn't been onboarded fully into either one, the digital world or two, a, a kind of tier one hardware uh, uh, digital universe. And that's still a lot of people, right? So Apple's still got a ton of room to grow. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. So similarly, um, retail, well, the the uh, uh, glo- global markets, that cl- the uh, uh, supply chains that when, when working can service that and, and 
uh, it can can service that global market. Um, this really changes the game, much like, you know, a, a more connected society and reta- retail trading platforms like Robinhood now make retail trading feasible. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, about retail trading, the extent to which that informed your thesis behind trading TV. And like I said, some of the kind of underlying infrastructure that's made it all possible. Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been a big believer that financial markets were made out to be much more complex than they actually are. And I know we've gotten fairly technical in this in this podcast. So mm-hmm. my hope is that people that are listening to it um, are not like scared away by these concepts and they can understand the vast majority of what we're saying. But and that, that's what we on, do on this podcast. We, yeah. we, we, we try to scare people. We see who's still around and then we give them the good stuff. So yeah. now we're talking. So um when I was on Wall Street, I was I was really kind of shocked by the amount of effort that went into convincing people, um, and these are like institutional clients or whatever, how complex something was. Because if you could convince them that it was complex, then it just became like, okay, great, like you can charge me whatever you want for this yeah. service because I can't do it myself. Well, the retail environment has been sold that myth for the begin since the beginning of time until now, right? Um, so people were basically, if you wanted to invest in the stock market, then you either had to like go to Fidelity or Charles Schwab. And like there was this concept of, you know, I need a financial advisor. Like not people that have like if you if you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you need a financial advisor because you have a huge amount of assets that need to be tax efficiently deployed and whatever. But for like the average person that's got 25, 30, you know, $2,000 or whatever, like they shouldn't be using a financial advisor. Like you can definitely do this yourself. So Robinhood popped up with this concept of commission-free trading. And that was a very disruptive thing for the industry. And it was something that actually should have existed a long time ago, but it didn't because it didn't benefit anybody who was uh, in the industry before and was charging egregious commissions to cut the commissions to zero, but it could have existed a long time ago. So they disrupted that. And now with the one thing that they've done really well, like I'm obviously not a a huge fan of Robinhood, but the one thing they've done really well is they've introduced whatever it is, 20, 25 million people to financial markets who probably wouldn't have been invested in financial markets uh, otherwise. And that is a incredibly positive thing. So the retail environment right now is saying, okay, we're going to have a resurgence of this whole do-it-yourself concept where the young people today, they just do not buy into this concept of like the only way to get wealthy is to like work at a corporate job and invest in your 401k and marry well and buy the first house and the value and the equity and that like no one wants to hear that like everyone knows that there's a million exciting opportunities that are going on whether they be in stocks whether they be in crypto or web3 like whatever right nfts like there's all this shit that's going on and like people just want access to it because they feel like this is the way to be able to, to get financial independence quickly. Um, and so what we started trading TV was, was the mechanism to be able to centralize the content around that. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether you want to be invested in stocks, crypto, NFTs, trading cards, rare sneakers, the centralized platform where creators are on there that are providing educational and entertaining information about a myriad of different assets. Hopefully every asset that you can conceive of. And then because you're already on platform and you know, you're there to learn about, let's say an NFT, we also facilitate the transactions uh, directly on platform as well. From an infrastructure standpoint, the reason why trading TV hasn't existed previously 
is because you had to build two sides of the house before. So like there's the social layer where you're, you know, distributing live stream or VOD content transaction layer where you're actually facilitating money in, in mm-hmm. trans in transactions. Um, so now there's companies that you can utilize to be able to solve both sides of that problem. So like we can effectively just take those products, marry them together with an API integration and focus on, you know, customer service, delivery of the content, things like that, which previously wasn't possible. So you can make Robinhood and Twitch or YouTube into the, the same platform. You make it a hybrid. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and by the way, like, you know, talking about the, how, how early we are, like in order for my platform to work, you know, 5g kind of like has to be a thing, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, like yeah. I think there's this assumption, you know, by people that like technology is just way ahead of where it actually is. Like just, just taking Instagram, for example, I mean, you know, again, people hate on Facebook, but when you post a video to Instagram, like it uploads seamlessly, it yeah. plays seamlessly, like all of the billions of transactions, the comments, the likes, the sharing, like yeah. all of that stuff happens across like a billion person user base flawlessly and like very rarely goes down. Mm-hmm. And yet like no one understands like the technological feat and accomplishment that that is like it is. Yeah mind-blowing that someone was able to figure that out amazon does the same thing but they're also moving billions trillions of dollars around you get the damn (laughs) delivery the next day no matter where you are it's incredible sometimes it comes in 15 minutes like you know so it can't be understated how difficult that is to do but from like my perspective live streaming like why is live streaming not bigger thing yet well because the actual distribution mechanisms moving it through whatever Verizon or whoever is like the delivery mechanism, it simply just didn't exist. Like the broadband Mm -hmm. just didn't exist in order for us to be able to do it at scale until very Uh recently. Um, So this is like, you know, this is sort of the early innings of a lot of these technologies, like blockchain technologies are in like warmups to preseason. Like we're not even remotely close um, to what we're going to see. And that's, what's exciting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to talk about that in, within the framework of information flow, because it was another really interesting point you made on the group in the group chat conversation um, and, and, and how it kind of tipped you off to where uh, the arrival of retail trading or at least the, the arrival of it, uh, of it in mass as it has recently. And that typically the way that you gathered information that you discovered alpha, uh, an information advantage while work, you know, as a financial professional at a bank was you call other smart people. You, yeah. call, you know, the, the people working at investment banks, no, but your boss ain't letting you go on social media ain't looking, <laughs> letting you go on Twitter and the, people have to keep a very low public profile. But yeah. then you were going and seeing the comments and the chatter in Reddit uh, on in uh, on in Reddit groups, on Reddit threads, on in Twitter was actually had more valuable and more informed information that you were finding from those calls on the street that had been the way that people transferred information and, and yeah. did their research for decades, right? And so this really this kind of foreshadowed the idea that that a whole new uh, a, a whole new sector of trading and financial uh, let's call it not professionals, but financial activity and trading activity was going to pop up outside the scope of actual banks and financial institutions. Yeah. So the one thing, I think there's like a a few benefits that institutional investors typically enjoy, um, you know, whether it's like more capital or the ability to be able to hire, you know, certain analysts that are really great at, at, you know, 
picking stocks or whatever. But the one thing that's a massive disadvantage is the lack of community. And community is kind of like this overused term. But when I mean community, I mean, if you're a hedge fund, your, your bread and butter is outperforming other hedge funds. Like that's mm-hmm. like what your goal is, right? Because then come the end of the year, you can say, look, I've posted 2%, 5%, 10% better returns than the other guy. Thus, you should withdraw money from the other guy and you should deposit it with me, right? So there's a fairly finite world of like hedge fund buyers. And like, there's a a large amount of hedge funds that are looking for, you know, investors in their hedge fund. So because of that, and of, of that dynamic, there's not a lot of communication between hedge funds. Like there's some other regulatory things and reasons why or whatever, but like, there's not a lot of, Hey, Matt, you know, I found this amazing idea. You should also be invested in this. Right. Because Mm -hmm. if I tell you, then you do it, then our returns are the same in the, in the retail community. It's almost the inverse where if somebody has a great idea or if they realize something that shouldn't exist, uh, uh, like a fundamental mispricing of an asset, Mm-hmm. GameStop, for example, when it was, you know, massively oversold uh, from a short sale perspective. And if that is not uh, communicated to the rest of the, the community, the likelihood that that asset is going to actually revert to the value that it should be is almost zero because the mm-hmm. individual retail investor doesn't have enough money to make it so. Right. Mm -hmm. So like that guy that realizes that might have like a few thousand dollars in investment. So you need Mm -hmm. the rest of the community to buy into the idea in order for it to like actually start to move. And the only Mm -hmm. way to do that is to like actually tell them about it, whether it's using voice, video, Mm -hmm. chat, whatever. So that was like a really it was like a light bulb moment for me where I was like, holy shit, these conversations are happening. And by the way, the ideas are really good. You know, like Mm -hmm. I like I was struggling to come up with. Um, as many good trade ideas as I was finding in the mm-hmm. forums, right? Like, yeah. It, it, and I was getting paid a lot of money to come up with <laughs> to come up with those trade <laughs> to come up with those trade ideas. Um, and and a big part of it is also just as technology moves faster, there's like a contingent of people who just thoroughly enjoy staying on the the cutting edge of it, and like they're they're paying attention to every little thing, and so mm-hmm. like that's their focus. Like they un- they're reading things that you know, most people wouldn't read in terms of white papers and they're understanding what that impact is going to be on the larger ecosystem. And then they're, they're continuing to extrapolate that into investment Mm -hmm. ideas. And once they do, um, then these like really lively discussions take place. So I wanted to build a platform around that because I feel like if somebody, if anybody that's interested in investing could have access to this information on a real-time basis, um, the likelihood that they would be able to profit from it is, mm-hmm. is extremely high. And, you know, very few people are like going to actually go into like the bowels of the internet and do it on, on, you know, a frequent basis. So there was an opportunity to commercialize and productize it. And so if you could, you know, we've gotten a little bit down the road in terms of tri- what you're doing with trading TV, but if you could back up and give us, give us the, the, you know, the 10,000 foot view. Yeah. So Trading TV is the world's first tradable live stream platform for traders and financial content creators. The one line pitch is it's a fintech love child of Twitch and TikTok meets Robinhood initially moving into uh, crypto and NFTs later on this year. So sort of a Coinbase OpenSea competitor as well. Um, so creators come onto the platform. They can create content on everything from stocks and options to crypto trading cards, rare sneakers, NFTs, as long as it's an asset class uh, that can be traded or invested in, 
content's totally fine on our platform. Fans, followers, and audiences can then buy and sell the underlying asset directly from us. So we launched uh, the beta app last year. We spent about six months in beta, learned a lot. Um, you know, it was a primarily desktop oriented experience in the first six months totally pivoted to uh, a mobile first experience starting on February 14th. Um, you know, the reason why we wouldn't desktop people are like, yeah, idiot, you know, desktop or whatever versus mobile. Like, of course, well, YouTube and Twitch are desktop oriented experiences. So mm-hmm. I was kind of following the logic that creators would want to create on desktop, um, which turned out to not be the case. Like they wanted to use mobile and, and fans, followers and audiences also wanted to use mobile. Um, mm-hmm. Also a pivot towards uh, more short form video content that leads the experience. So if I come to the platform for the first time, uh, and I'm not familiar with a creator, it's a big investment for them to watch a 30 minute video or a 45 minute live stream or whatever. So there needs to be a familiarization process um, to introduce the user to the creator and start to build that relationship, build the rapport. Um, and that's more easily facilitated through short form content. So we've mm-hmm. now pivoted to when you come to the platform, it's a very short form video experience, which then leads into the long format video if people are looking to get more in depth on things. Well, that's uh, being a founder uh, uh, of a tech startup, something that that is digitally focused, or where you're cu- you're encountering your customers digitally. I mean, that's it's always an, uh, uh, iterate, iteration based on market feedback, which is fascinating. I mean, that's totally the, right. You're you're con- you're constantly updating, particularly during this early state early phase. So much like that was some initial user feedback. Um, uh, you know, it, oddly enough that that you kind of launched or started to open up the platform more around this seismic shift in the market over the last yeah. couple months. Anything that you've learned from uh, what's the chatter in retail right now that you're seeing on the platform? Uh, so I actually think that I, I candidly believe that this is the best time to be launching uh, the platform because more people there's higher levels of engagement so if you look at if you look at total overall social volumes as it relates to assets they tend to skyrocket during periods of extreme volatility like the Mm -hmm. worst thing for our platform is is a like super boring market where things kind of like go up or down 10 basis points a day and like you know it's not really fun to be trading because things aren't really moving around and Mm -hmm. there's not conversations that are worth having like think about this like this is an hour-long conversation and that could probably go on for 10 hours like there's so much shit going on in the world right like there's interest rates that are getting moved for the first time in in 12 years like i don't know that's a monumental thing that people should probably pay attention to that's going to have an impact on all our lives positively Mm -hmm. negatively whatever um like there's the possibility that Russia invades Ukraine and like then there's a like a bona fide war potential that's going like what's that going to do to asset prices like there's just so much it's going like we're in the beginning of of web3 and blockchain and like game changing technologies and all of those assets can now be traded like companies are every single day issuing nfts and, and you know, some of them are total nonsense and should be worth less than, you know, the, they're not printed on paper, but the blockchain they're printed on, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and some of them, and some of them are going to be worth like tens of millions of dollars. So Mm -hmm. it's a really, it's a great time. But I think initially the, the reaction when things start to get a little bit hairy is to just like pull back. Right. Which is fine. Um, But in the process of pulling back, meaning like 
even though you're not trading, what most people are doing is they're looking for information. So yeah. being the hub of that information is a positive because eventually we think that that person who's consuming that information will then take action. You know, it doesn't need to be today. It doesn't need to be tomorrow. It doesn't need to be next week, You're, be a month from now, a year from now or whatever, but we want to be the on-ramp to be able to give people the confidence to be able to take action at some point because incredible opportunities are going to occur. You're you're trying to monetize discourse around a niche, which is something that I think is is very much a, a frothy opportunity. And because I think a lot of people assume that uh, everyone's saying, okay, well, Facebook, the next thing's going to come around, and it would be a direct a, a direct replacement, just like MySpace was for Friendster and Facebook was for MySpace. That's not how it goes. Okay, you're going to kind of have your broader based, you know, uh, let's call it your broader based social media platforms and and those kind of staple profiles, and then there's going to be just a vast array of, of niche platforms that serve as one particular conversation or discourse, and you're trying to do it around trading, financial markets, and retail investing. Yeah. I think that that, be a good? Yeah, totally. And I think that there's some spaces that the verticalization of them is just like wholly unnecessary. So, mm-hmm. you know, you take like, there is a market for, I don't know, civil war reenactments, but like, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you get, but, you, 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 like, you got to assess you, total addressable yeah, market. There. You got to yeah. like look at what the total. So like using gaming as a as a parallel, like gaming is a massive market. So there can be a number of multiple you know unicorn decacorn companies that supports that ecosystem. Whether it's Discord mm-hmm. and chat, whether it's Twitch and streaming, you know, like all the different publishers that go into it. So finance to me is this thing that was traditionally looked at as very unsexy because there wasn't a lot of disruption um, that was taking place in in the actual space. And that has gone, you know, from basically non-existent disruption to uh, an entire like DeFi and and Web3 sort of movement over the course of the last 18 months. Um, And so I think there's going to be, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 companies that end up being multiple billion dollar businesses that are supporting this. Um, and if trading TV can you know, play a part in that, then that's great. Fantastic for your, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> um, so we've been talking about this more in terms of the public markets and macroeconomic policy, but let's talk a little bit more about, you know, you are now a startup founder. Yeah. You have just, and you just went through the experience and one that scares off is probably the, the, you know, the prohibitive activity for 99% of the people who end up not starting companies, you raise money. Yeah. Um, what were your experiences raising a, a pretty significant initial round um, over the past year? You know, what did you learn and what's your, what's your outlook? And, you know, has, has anything, any understandings changed from when you began that process? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And actually like I've been keeping a notebook uh, on all of my learnings from the fundraising process, the entrepreneurial process in general, just because I feel like there's a lot written on like scaling businesses and, you know, whatever, like sort of the growth phase of things, but there's Mm -hmm. not enough written on like, how do I get from that moment in time where I wake up with what I think is a great idea to like day one of operating a business. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess like a few things I would, I would call out. One is I strongly recommend that that people find a co-founder. Like I didn't have a Mm co-founder. And if I could go back in time, I would have like, my first thing I would have done is I, instead of pitching investors, I would have just pitched 
um, like technical, I'm a non-technical founder for everyone listening. So, you know, I come from wall street, not from Silicon Valley engineering background. So I would have just gone to Silicon Valley and I would have sat in a coffee shop and I would have pitched the idea to like every engineer that I found or whatever, until mm-hmm. someone was like, yeah, I'll found this business with you. Um, and the reason for that is you make a lot of like technical mistakes along the way that cost you both money and time that can be avoided if you have like a great technical founder. Conversely, if I was a technical founder, I would have found I would be looking for a business oriented person because I've dealt with a lot of engineers who I think are fantastic engineers, but they don't do what I do and I don't do what they do. Like they're not out in the world doing business development, raising money, so on and so forth. So the combination of both sides of the house, I think makes for a compelling story. And as we go into what I think is going to be a tougher environment to raise money, um, having like a, a great founding team is, is super important. Also, I want to say that my biggest fear when I was starting TTV was that I was like going to tell, you know, you or someone else, not that you would do it maliciously, but like that someone was going to like steal my idea. Like you're at a mm-hmm. cocktail party and you're like, oh, you know, my buddy is like starting this great streaming company for yeah. traders. And then cause like everyone's seen, you know, a social network. And so like, you know, Facebook was, that's never going to fucking happen. Like you yeah, should spend about- all day, <laughs> you spend all day telling people about your idea. And like, that should be the only thing you should do. Just tell people good, about your idea. Good, adv- good advice when taken becomes great advice. The thing is most people don't take good advice, just like they don't act on good ideas. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you have a good idea, someone else has had it before. You're not going to tip. There's no light bulb that, that's going to be, no light bulb is going to go off when you t- uh, pitch your idea to someone and then they're then going to take it and run with it. Other people may run, may compete with you, but th- that either you're going to beat them or you're dead anyways. Yeah, like, exactly. Th- that's it. You have to execute. You have to scale. And I mean, from the legal perspective, it's these founders asking people to sign NDAs ahead it's of time. Crazy. Just here, here's a quick uh, message for any anyone who can't, mm-hmm. just came up with a great idea, wants to pitch it or raise money and wants people to buy uh, to sign an NDA. Nobody, uh, nobody valid, nobody legitimate is signing your goddamn NDA. They'll no laugh one. at you if you try. Yeah. It actually, it actually does. Like, that's the thing is that you, you, you didn't nail it. They will laugh at you and it actually makes you look like an amateur. So I, I would, I would highly encourage people that think that, you know, getting an NDA is a, is a positive to, to not go that route. Cause if you ask VCs to do it, they would never do it because it would bar them from investing in like companies. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, getting a founder, I think getting a, a technical co-founder or a founder on and the so business side. T- Tobias, what do you, what do you think, uh, what aspects of your pitch or aspects of your business do you think were the convincing factors in getting these highly discerning professional investors to invest with you? Yeah. So we, well, one, like we were, I pitched creating a technology that, that previously didn't exist. So like tradable live streaming is something that we invented. So like mm-hmm. we had like a, a strong technological idea, um, or at least like taking technologies that were utilized in other formats and repurposing them for something totally new. Um, Mm -hmm. one, that was one, two, we had, uh, a massive potential mark addressable market. So like, it's not just thinking about, um, you know, like let's say stocks or something like that. Like we were going after the entire retail investing ecosystem, which even during the course of the pitch was expanding far, far faster than like we could even update the pitch deck. So the best example is 
you know, NFTs. Like I didn't put NFTs into my, the, the first version of my pitch because they didn't exist in early 2020. And (laughs) now now we're at like, you know, $20 billion in like, you know, daily traded volume or whatever on like OpenSea. So the asset classes were just expanding far faster than, than we could, we could keep up with. Um, That was, that was the second thing. The third thing was, um, the focus on on community and creators. So like companies today, like one of the reasons why a lot of people have asked me like, oh, Robin Hood shitting the bed, you know, is that bad for for TTV? And I'm like, no, it's a it's a positive. <laughs> you know, like the biggest competitor is now there's a kink in their armor, right? Like they're showing the their their stock price is finally showing the weaknesses, which I've been alluding to for a very long time. And I think the primary reason that Robinhood's starting to fail is because they didn't focus on community. Like there was no, every, all of the engagement that was taking place uh, associated with the transactions that were taking, that were happening on platform were taking place off platform. So there mm-hmm. were, those were like, those conversations weren't happening on Robinhood and like they didn't build a community. Like they didn't have something that that wasn't a part of what they thought was important. Um, I think it's, it's at the center of what's important. And I, and I think that no matter whether you're developing um social application or whether you're developing, you know, something in healthcare or whatever, you know, like you need to, you need to start with the community piece of it. Like you need to find people who are genuinely interested uh, in, in whatever you're doing and, and build it around them. Um, because that's and like, just, that's where yeah. things start to get into the fly. People well. like to chat, man. People like that's to it. chat, get past, get past your hangups that some people have this defiance that everyone wants to have a voice now. And Oh my God, well, sorry, sorry the genie's not going back in the bottle. Everyone yeah. has a voice. Everyone has a voice. Everyone want, you know, a lot of people want to have a voice. It's going to be some people who probably shouldn't have a voice, but you're going to have to take the good with the bad and adding a social layer and some community around just about anything you do in the social media age and going forward. It's, it's going to be fi- critical to what you're, to, to what you're building. Yeah. And so I think that those three things were, were really important. How is the fundraising environment, you know, uh, moving from like actual, like the ideas and all the rest of that stuff into like getting in front of VCs. Um, it's incredibly, it's shocking, like how easy it is to get in front of a VC. If you are active on Twitter, if you're active, mm-hmm. like the, the biggest mistake that people make, and I made this mistake because I was ignorant to uh, how it actually worked is like this whole concept of like stealth mode. You know what I mean? Like I spent six, <laughs> I spent six months, seriously though. Like I spent six months in stealth mode. You know, yeah. the only, I, I could only raise money from my friends and family. Shocker. The only people that knew that I was fucking doing anything were my friends yeah. and family. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, as yeah. soon as I like exited stealth, then like every VC in the world was like calling me up. Hey, let's have a meeting or whatever. And like, I had a few pre-existing relationships um, from my time on wall street, but you know, 95% of the VCs that I've had conversations with since founding TTV are brand new and they didn't have any idea that I was, you know, on the face they, of the they earth. They want for, deals. They've they got to chase deals. Yeah. There's like, there's literally positions at all big VC firms that like the only thing those people do is comb through LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever and look for new companies um, to invest in. So like, A, I, I love that, you know, you create your own content. Um, I think more founders and more people that are interested in being entrepreneurs should create content, whether that's mm-hmm. video content, whether it's tweets, like whether it's writing, I write on, on, on medium Substack, whatever, like create fucking content and get it out in the world. And like, if the content starts resonating, like if you're like, Hey, you know, this 
this is my idea, blah, blah, blah. And it starts resonating. It's that's a tangible thing that you can then go and sell to a VC. Like, Hey, I put this, you know, I put this whatever tweet out and it, you know, it got retweeted, you know, 10,000 times. Like that's a much better, like that's a tangible data point, right? Like that's a much better thing to start the conversation off than like, Hey, I've got an idea. Well, okay. Well, great. Like lots of people. Yeah. Lots of people have ideas. Not everybody has an audience and an audience people, people, it's a good social proof point that people think that what you have to say is worthwhile. And totally. I know this can kind of, hey, it, 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 it can come off as cliched Gary V air quotes type of bullshit, but it's just, this is the reality, man. Content does have scalable benefits for sure. Yeah. So I think that that's like, get away from the the fear of like someone stealing your idea, start creating content, find a co-founder. Once you start creating the content, you've got a, a decent story to tell there. Um, you know, be active on, on LinkedIn and, and the other, uh, you know, sort of social platforms, which VCs traffic in. Um, and then, yeah, from there, like when you're doing your pitches, I think like honesty is something that is becoming a higher, uh, of more value too. It's mm-hmm. like, meaning like, I don't mean that people were being dishonest, but like more reasonable expectations about what it is that you're going to do. Like, you know, there's yeah. always this concept of, if I pitch it too big, you know, uh, is it going to sound like, you know, too grandiose or whatever? And then they're not going to buy into it. Like there's a, there's a happy medium between like the super, um, in the weed sort of pitch. And then like this, you know, Hey, we're going to create Amazon in 12 months. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, but like, I think having like a reasonable, uh, outlook, like here's where we are today here's like what's tangible over the course of the next year and like laying that stuff out in like a viable manner uh, is super important because like you, most of the time you're pitching to um, either, either multi-stage or stage agnostic uh, investors. And so they're thinking about it from like, all right, if I'm in it pre-seed, like what can I get between here and seed, you know, like that sort of thing. And so having like that, that roadmap laid out is super important. And I, 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 I get pitched a lot now because, you know, I've been doing my, own investing on the side. And like, so mm-hmm. few of these people really understand like, okay, yeah, I'm going, I'm investing in pre-seed. Like where, like, what do you need to do to get to seed? And like, what's that look like? You know, my, cause I'm trying to 10 X my money from pre-seed to seed. Right. Or I'm yeah. trying to like, so the, like understanding like what stage you're at is also super important. Mm-hmm. And so you locked in your, your round before the market started to tank. Um, but have you been keeping abreast of the prep? Because to, at, at least at the initial Upon the initial dip, someone was saying, "Okay, wait. The the public markets are being affected more than the private markets. Meaning, um, the the stock market is dipping harder than the valuation, the venture capital, or the startup, or early stage valuations in the private markets. Is that holding true? Is there starting? Are you starting to see a pullback of investment funds in it, from early stage companies? Uh, uh, recalibration of early stage valuations, or is that still something we're anticipating that we haven't quite seen yet?" Yeah. So in terms of the speed, um, obviously public markets are going to react a lot faster because they're, they're traded on an exchange that allows real-time liquidity. Right. So like the, so like they're going to, it's going to move faster in the public markets than it will in the private markets because that's the liquidity dynamic that exists. Um, in terms of private markets and the correlation to public markets, uh, traditionally it's been fairly strong, meaning like, you know, when, public markets, uh, equities are, are going up. Like founders love to use those as 
comps because it benefits us to do so because most of the time you're comping against the company that's you know whatever like 10 15 20 billion dollars in valuation um when they go down of course there's pushback from private market founders that like oh you know just because this market public market equity is going down doesn't mean that our company is suffering and it's a case-by-case basis right like there's companies that are going to be able to raise tremendous amounts of capital at extremely high valuations i think ftx just announced like uh you know 35, $40 billion valuation or something like yeah. that today. Monster. Um, that is separate from FTX US, which just raised at an $8 billion valuation. So you'll continue to, continue to see mega deals. But um, over the course of this year, what I'm expecting is a more difficult environment to be able to raise funds for companies that don't have like traction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're a company that's going from zero to one, um, it's going to be harder for you to kind of get the capital there. Um, and the valuations will probably come down, you know, in line with public market valuations. Like, okay, what does that mean? So business is worth 20, 30, 40% less. Like, okay. You know, like, you know, yeah. within the concept of like venture capital, like VC is not about hitting like, you know, a single, right? Like you're, yeah. you're looking for hundred X returns or whatever. So like if valuations come down 20, 30, 40%, like so be it. Um, but I think it's a positive in, in a lot of ways, because if you're a business, if you're a company that's executing in an environment where less capital is getting deployed, like, yeah, you're going to be able to demand, you know, it, you're going to have leverage, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the VCs still have to deploy. They still have money that needs to be deployed. Um, yeah, they there's need to still be more a selective. ton, there's still a yeah. ton of money sitting with, with, uh, venture funds right now. And that's Massive. not going anywhere. Yeah. And they've got that money has to go somewhere. Even yeah. if the macro environment it, it darkens a little bit, like the, the amount of they wealth. Love it. Yeah. They love when this happens because it they means can, that their return, their returns are going to be like, they know that like, you know, looking at my business, whatever, like, you know, they know that at some point in time, it, maybe it's not going to be, you know, two months from now, maybe it's six months from now, maybe it's a year from now, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, there's going to be another bull market, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, if you get a chance to buy a business that would have been, you know, whatever, a billion dollar valuation during the bull market for 250, $300 million or whatever, it, because like things are are in bear market territory, like, great. That just means yeah. that they're going to make a lot more money when things go back up. So yeah, like, I, I think good companies will continue to find funding. It'll just be at, you know, slightly more reasonable valuations than what's been enjoyed by founders and investors over the course of the last, you know, two or three years. Yeah. You know, those venture capitalists uh, taking a pitch from a founder pointing to Netflix stock and saying, ah, that's why we can't give you that $25 million cap on that safe for God knows what. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll, pull, they'll pull out any, any stop to take some leverage there um so this has been fantastic uh it, it will not be the last time you know you and i are chatting and, and obviously to, to your thesis about trading tv that there's going to be an ongoing conversation no shortage of topics to talk about in the financial and uh, financial markets and the economy um but for the moment um give us the current status of trading tv and for anyone who's listening out there who is interested in participating in being a creator in joining um how best to do so yeah. So mobile app launches uh, February 14th. iOS and Android will be available. If you're a creator, if you're a user, it's a great time to be able to download the app, start operating. Um, we also do have 
a uh, a creator's corner. So we are taking, we are you know negotiating deals on a one-off basis with individual creators. That's uh, at www.trading.tv. You can get in touch with us there. But yeah, I mean, like uh, I'm I'm really you know pleased to be a part of, uh, of the podcast. It was great that we were able to have this conversation. Um, looking forward to the continued collaboration from uh, from you and I. And yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely, bud. Let uh, let everyone know where they can find you on social. Yeah, so my social handles are uh, either at ttv.hq for the company or at Tobias underscore Francis for me personally. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, what else am I on? I think that's it. I think we just started a TikTok. So we're on TikTok now, which has actually been fun. The inevitable so, yeah, pull, the gravitational I'm pull out, of TikTok, I'm out man. there, man. You can find me. <laughs> you can find this man. Um, and I'm sure you guys found this illuminating everything you wanted to know about the financial markets. Use this information to go make a billion dollars, sound cool at parties, or even go become one of the top creators on trading TV. Use it however you wish. Um, so, every, Tobias, thank you once again for joining us. And uh, everyone, this is the prevailing narrative. Uh, thank you so much. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.